Good morning, Highland Community Church. My name is Jared Stichter. I have the privilege of serving as a student ministries pastor here at Highland. And uh, before we get into the story and the witty beginning, I just want to take a moment to continue in prayer as we ask God to continue to guide this time. Um, it's songs like the one we just sang that reminds me just how good God is, and I don't want to necessarily interrupt that time uh, by getting into some witty opening, all right? So God, thank you for today. Thank you for this time. God, we can sing songs about how good you are, and we can repeat those words over and over again because, Father, you are so good. And God, we are thankful. We are a thankful people because we are a needy people. And God, we come together and uh, Lord, we've been encouraged through the songs we've sang, uh, sung and, and, and the, 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 the fellowship we've already had. Maybe the caffeine is kicking in now with the coffee we drink. And Father, we are just ready to dig into your word. So God, thank you for the Family Life series. Thank you for your word uh, being the source we can draw from, God. Thank you so much for this time here together. We pray that you would guide us, you would lead us, and uh, Lord, that you would um, poke and prod and God, help us to become more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when you are working hard in your office and uh, Pastor Jeff walks in and just shuts the door, it can mean a number of things, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it, a lot of times the conversations are, are, are encouraging. Uh, Pastor Jeff is an encourager, and he wants to make sure that we feel good and that we're, we're working hard, and he, you know, he's a good encourager like that. Some conversations are designed to help, uh, for me, just know kind of what's going on. If there's some family things going on or there's something that I need to know pertaining to student ministry, um, it, it's good to be in the loop. And then there's my favorite conversation, and that is the invitation to play golf. And that is awesome. Um, that doesn't come very often, but I'm working on my, on my, my game, and we'll see if, if more invites come. But that was not how this conversation was. This conversation was uh, just a nice sneak in. Hey, Jared. Hey, Jeff. Um, Family Life Series is going on. Yeah, I know. It's coming up in a few months. Uh, you're going to preach on purity. Sleeps, uh, you know, just, just slips out and shuts the door. I'm like, oh, come on, man. And then I get talking to Pastor Sam, and he's preaching on purity. And I'm like, what in the world's going on? So, yes, I think Pastor Jeff, uh, since he's not here, I can say this. Um, you guys won't tell him I said this. I do believe, like Pastor Sam, that he likes to watch the young guy squirm um, when he gives us, you know, topics to preach on. And so, um, you know, this morning he gave me the topic of purity. Well, we're not really a topic driven church. We're like expository preaching church. I'm like, so what am I supposed to do with that? He said, you know, preach. I'm like, oh, thanks, Jeff. This is great. Okay. So um, we're, we're going to break the rules a little bit this morning. I kind of like to break rules once in a while. And so we're going to jump around a little bit in scripture, but we're going to watch the thread of what God has to say through different parts of scripture. Uh, purity is one of those things that um, we sometimes go directly to this one vein of sexual purity. And scripture is actually uh, pretty clear about purity in a number of different areas. And so today we're going to look at a couple different lenses that scripture talks about purity. And some of it's historical and just kind of why God had laws he did for the Jewish people and where we draw that from. But then also going into different texts where um, we can see God's heart for his people. And my hope is that today that we are left encouraged and uplifted, that this isn't a time of feeling like we're just getting kicked again uh, because we're talking about purity. And so going into that, I have to admit something. 
I'm a, I'm a guy that kind of likes to be in the dark about a few topics and a few details. I like to believe because it's 2018, I live in America, the, the water I drink is clean and the food I eat is, is pure and, and, and clean as well. And then there are those kind of people. You know, those, those facts people, the people who like to learn a few things and then publish it on the internet so everyone else can know. And so starting off today, uh, we're, I want to look at a few facts according to the FDA. And um, Food and Drug Administration. All right, so question for you. How much insect filth would you be okay with in your cinnamon? Because I know how much they allowed. I I just want to share some of the stuff with you today, all right? Because I've read it, I know it, and now you have to. Um, Because this is, I I can't do this alone. Don't worry, cinnamon. Only 339, or I'm sorry, 399 pieces of insect filth per 50 grams. Not that much, no big deal. Chocolate lovers can have an average of 59 or less fragments of insects per 100 grams. That's not that much, right? Coffee beans, oh no, here it gets real, (laughs) are good to go if an average of 9% or less by count are insect infested or insect damaged. So uh, 9% of your beans. What about rodent filth? Don't worry, it's only rodent hair. It's nothing else. Okay, Uh, rodent filth refers to hair. In your cocoa powder, you're allowed to have one rodent hair per subsample of 50 grams. Just one little hair. And cinnamon, if it wasn't bad enough for insects, now we got, what about cinnamon with the, uh, you know, the rodent filth? 10 rodent hairs per 50 grams on average. Not that much. But mold, or about mold. It'd be like apple butter. I like apple butter. Um, but uh, maybe not for this. Up to 11% or less can be in your apple butter of mold to still be not only sellable, but healthy. Um, insects. If you like frozen broccoli, you'll be excited. And there's only an average of 59 or less uh, pieces of insects per 100 grams. Not that much. Oh, this one's good. Mammalian excreta. Poop. <laughs> Fennel seeds, right? It's safe. It's safe. In your fennel seeds for a consumption of 19% or less. Oh, in a sample of three milligrams. Oh, that's terrible. All right. Ginger. Safe, apparently safe it reads. Apparently safe to eat if there's an average of two milligrams or less of feces per pound. This is gross. We think our food is pure. And then someone like that releases the facts. So I want to ask the question today. Just how much impurity are you comfortable with going into your diet? Just how much impurity? How many rodent hairs are too many to not make that pumpkin pie from scratch? Right? How many pieces of insects is just too much for you to, you know, not eat that cinnamon? It's funny because I think if you're like me, you kind of get grossed out by some of these details because we think about the idea that what we have in front of us should be pure. What we have to eat should, should not have contaminants. And I think there's this really amazing correlation between the physical food we eat and the things spiritually we let in our system. In fact, I think we're really good about perhaps, okay, I'm not going to buy cinnamon again. I'm not going to do that again. Or I'm going to buy certain brands or whatever. And, and we get a little... Um, lazy when it comes to what we place in front of us to watch or to listen to, what we read. 
And today is not just about sexual purity. In fact, we're going to step back from that. We're going to get there eventually because the Bible talks about it. But today I want us to think and consider about purity as a whole in different areas of our lives and different layers of, of our being. And so I think first up, sometimes the things we truly believe in the moment are going to help us. It's going to be a good way to respond or a good um, um, release or something actually hurts us. I think when we, when, we, when we think long and hard about the situations we find ourselves in or the, the different uh, encounters we have throughout the day, those very things that we go to right away perhaps aren't the best thing for us. You see, sin and impurity are designed to hurt. Uh, by design, they're designed to hurt, and everyone reacts in a way drawn towards it, except everyone feels the effects of it. So last week we spent a narrow time focused dealing with uh, sexual purity in that way. We're going to step back today. And when it comes to our purity, we have to understand it's so much bigger than sexual purity. And so we, let's look in Scripture at different places where we find it. First off, we see in the Old Testament the, the fire of the impurity. Uh, and so what you do with precious metals, gold, silver, other precious metals, is you would put them into the furnace, right? Put them into the fire, and the junk would burn off. But the valuable things remain. And the Bible shows us this picture of when you put stuff in the fire, the stuff that doesn't belong burns off. And the valuable things stay. And that's a really beautiful picture for us to look at today. That things worth keeping endure the fire. Things that are valuable don't deteriorate in the flame. It's the junk that doesn't belong there that does. You see in Isaiah 6, the seraphim went and, and took the coals out of, uh, you know, in the, in the story of Isaiah, he said, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He falls and worships, and, and uh, the seraphim comes and takes the coal and touches his lips. And it's a symbol of your sin is now paid for, but there, there is a cleansing of the mouth hot coals, fire in the Old Testament shows the refiner's fire uh, creates pure and long-lasting jewels and metal. Water is the universal prevalent means for material and personal cleansing. And so we see that a lot in in the Old Testament. We see that during the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that the the priests would go and they would wash and they would put their hands on the scapegoat and then they'd wash and then they would, you know, animal sacrifices are kind of messy. And so they would wash and there's a ceremony cleansing. We see this all over the Old Testament. There's even... uh, in the, in the New Testament, we see baptism, right? We know that baptism is dead and you're saying alive with Christ, but we also understand it to be the symbol of, of being washed. And this water is this idea of this cleansing agent. We also see racial uh, purity. And so I want to be very clear about what we, what we mean, what we don't mean. God, we have to understand that God has designed people to be unique because God's unique. And God has designed people to look different because God is creative. And God took the Jewish people and he set them aside. And he says, you're going to be a beacon of light and hope to everyone around you. And so along with that came, uh, came this, these rules and these laws for how to stay um, 
racially pure within the Jewish culture. You see, God knew that as they moved around, as they went different places, that they would fall in love with other people who aren't a, a Jewish person, that they would be exposed and they would see the gods they worshipped. And God understood that through, through this time together that they would begin to be drawn to other gods. And so we see God who says, I want to protect you. I want you to not consider what it looks like to, to run away from me. In fact, I want you to walk with me. I want you to stay with me. And, and so focus on me. And it's not just about racial purity. It's about taking a race, the Jewish people, and, and keeping them pure. Focus on me and only me. When you, when, when this land that I give you that, that, that is full of all sorts of things, you're going to be exposed to all kinds of things. Keep your eyes on me. See, God's a God that tells his people, you're going to be surrounded by junk, but keep your eyes on me. And, and when you're surrounded about tons of impurity, you can stay pure by keeping your focus on me. And so there's also this practical thing. With God knew that the Messiah would come one day. And the people longed for Messiah. He was to come from Jewish lineage. So there's a very practical element of staying, um, keeping pure, um, so there'd be a Jewish bloodline. Next up, there's hygienic. One of, the, one of the marks of the Mosaic law, this idea of hygiene, keeping clean. You see, this was, this was remarkable in the time of wilderness when they were wandering around. They didn't know things like medicine, anatomy. They didn't know things like cleanliness. So God set up these laws, these rules about hygiene to help keep them safe. You see, God sets up laws and disciplines. God sets up these, these uh, lines of communication to help save his people's lives. See, God's character has always been one to say, I want to keep my people safe from harm. They still endured the wilderness. <laughs> they still wandered. But God says, I'm going to keep you safe. So he instituted hygiene laws. And this idea of purity was literally a matter of life and death for the Jews when they wandered. Then there's this ceremonial cleanliness, this idea of uncleanliness, all of it, physical or moral, had religious involvement and therefore required ritual behavior. And so the idea is that everything I did physically had a spiritual connection. That's still True today. What we do physically has a spiritual connection. And we see that, well, my sin is impacting not only me, but others too. That, that's, still today, that's still true today. And the idea was that if I was sinful, there needed to be a way to ceremonially become right before God. Because pre-Jesus, there were rituals. There were ways to get close to God. And it kind of involved us as people going forward and allowing the ceremony cleansing to happen. You see, the fact that sin committed by one would affect many, the whole camp, our own families, was still true in Jesus' day. You see, his own disciples in John 9 went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, teacher. See, they just encountered a blind man and they had to ask the question, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Because he was blind. And the idea was, he's blind. There must be a sin issue here. And Jesus responds, he's like, you guys are missing the point. Not, he's not blind because someone's sinned. He, he's blind so you can see the power of God heal someone and so you can believe. You see, there's a deep connection that my physical um, handicap, my physical well-being was dependent on whether or not I was in sin or not, staying pure or not. 
And then there's overall spiritual purity is a common theme throughout the Old and New Testament. We see that. So there's some different avenues of purity outside of just the one context of sexual purity that we find in the Scripture. So in light of those things, I want us to look at three different lenses today, different lenses uh, we see in Scripture. First off is the heart, the purity of the heart. Uh, perhaps you might remember uh, the Beatitudes series we were just in just a few months ago. And Pastor Jeff uh, preached a sermon on this one verse, and that's Matthew 5.8. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Perhaps you remember what Pastor Jeff talked to us about, about that purity, is the idea that this idea of uh, being pure in heart, you shall see God, is this idea of laser focus on God. Not having one foot in two different camps, but this idea of laser focus. And, and so when we think about what this verse is actually saying, as we take a step back, look at it in its context, and look at the context of Scripture, we can, we can seriously begin to see a pattern that when things are foggy, when we can't see very well, when we have those issues with seeing God, we can ask the question, how's my heart? <laughs> Perhaps you're like me, and there's just days where things just aren't going well. Uh, you feel like maybe God's not the closest. You feel like maybe he's silent. You feel like perhaps something's just off in this season. And I have to go back and say, Lord, check my heart. Because the truth is, is that when things get in my life, when I allow things in that shouldn't be there, the first thing I notice is my vision gets blurred. I see that God, God and I aren't seeing eye to eye. And it's because of the sin in my life. You see, we have a problem. And Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Some versions say, who can know it? This idea that my heart is sick, is, is messed up. Who can know it? We're told today, follow your heart, right? If you feel it, it must be true. And yet scripture gives us a different picture saying, a heart is deceptive. And in fact, it's deceitful and it's sick. It's desperately sick. So we have to ask the question, what do we do? If we have a sick heart, what do we do? Well, I'm reminded by the words of David in Psalm 51. Chapter 10, he says, that, or verse 10 in chapter 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Perhaps you remember the context of Psalm 51. You see, David was a king. And this wasn't a time period in history when kings would be able to do what we have today and they get to stay stateside while the soldiers are off fighting different battles and wars across the globe. This was a time when a king would go with his men. And this is a time in war when David is home being a bad king at the time while his men are off fighting. And with his idle time, he discovers a young lady bathing on top of a roof. Culturally, I guess that's a thing. But he noticed her, and he liked what he saw. He called for her. So all of a sudden you have this young lady and the king. Well, it's hard to say no to the king, and she conceives a child. See, the thing is, she's married. And her husband is a soldier, and not just a soldier, he's a pretty good soldier. And he's off fighting when David's sitting at home, not doing what he should be doing. And they conceive a child, and so David does whatever he Wise man does. He tries to cover his tracks. Well, you know that's foolish. Wise men don't cover their tracks. 
he tries to cover his tracks and he says, I'm going to bring her husband home and they're going to enjoy a night um, with food and drink. And they're going to be able to enjoy the pleasures of not being at war. And then no one will ask questions when she gets pregnant. But you see, her husband is a man of character. He said, I can't do this while my men are fighting. I'll sleep on the floor. Well, that messes up David's plans. So he goes a step further and says, that's okay. I'll cover it up. He sends him to the front line where he's sure to die, and he does. He tries to cover up his sin. And the craziest thing about all this is David actually thought this was a good idea at the time. We have the ability to look back and say, that was, that was a foolish decision. People died. The, the baby died. But David thought in the moment this was wise. And the best thing about David, I think we see in all of Scripture with him, is not so much that he's the perfect example of what it looks like to be a godly man. He might be the man of God's own heart, but it's because he's had to talk to God so many times about repentance. It's because he understands that when you get out of that fog, when your vision stops being blurred, when the heart issue comes to light, you repent. You stop. And the truth is David has good examples of not doing that. We see that here. But he also has lots of examples where he does do that. And when he gets brought to light, he repents. But David didn't do this by himself. You see, there's a man named Nathan. And in 2 Samuel 12, this man comes up. Nathan's his friend. Nathan says, I got to tell you something going on, king. He tells a story that gets David angry to the point where David's response is, we need to kill the guy you're talking about. And Nathan says, that man is you. You see, David had a friend that was willing to have a hard conversation with him. David had a friend that was willing to say, we got to talk about your heart issue here because your heart issue is now spilled over into other things. And David repents. And we see that in um, Psalm 51.10, but he continues on here, 11 uh, uh, 11 to 16. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He goes on and he says, this will spill over into my life. It's not just about what's going on here. I will now speak your truth and I will teach it to others. David doesn't stop with asking for God to create a clean heart. He says, based off this clean heart, I will respond now with my life. And that spills over into our next lens, our heart to our head. See, Psalm 119 says this, uh, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It's now spilled over from this idea of my heart has an issue to now I need to know what's going on. And by knowing what's going on, by memorizing scripture, by taking God's word and dwelling on these things, I can now guard myself. And you have to ask the question, what do you guard from? Why do you guard yourself? It's because there's an attack, right? Because something is coming at you, you can guard yourself. And we can't be so foolish to think that this comes easy, right? Protecting ourselves does not come easy. So he says, how can a young man, how can a person keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. By dwelling on God's word. By getting into God's word. See, that's a new lens for us. 
to be able to see life through the scripture, the lens of scripture. To be able to see life through what does the Bible say about this? What does, uh, what does meditating do? Uh, because he goes on, he says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. And I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your laws and I will not forget your word. Psalm 119 reminds us once again it's not about just taking in God's word. It's actively living accordingly. This idea of not just hearing the word, but dwelling on the word, meditating on the word day and night. You see, he says that um, only when that happens will our outward, where our life actually moves, so there's an outward response. And the truth is, if we try to fake it, people will see it. Uh, Luke 6, 45, we're reminded, and Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasures of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. This idea that when we're saving faith, everything's good to go, our mouth gives us away. It's about when we, we, uh, we're able to shake hands and look people in the eye on Sunday morning, but the joke we heard that was a little inappropriate comes out Monday at work. Or it's about everything's good to go when everyone's watching, but the minute it's after hours or we're home and no one else is around, things happen. Or it's this idea that because I have a tablet with headphones, what I'm watching on Netflix doesn't actually, no one needs to know about it. See, purity is so much more than just a sexual purity. It's this idea of anything laid before us, anything that goes in or, or, or in front of our face, it, direct, it directly impacts us. And this is where I have to pause and say this is not about legalism. Right? Everything is about an overflow of what happens from the inside out. But it's this idea that out of, out of the overflow of the heart, my mouth will speak. Out of what's going on inside of me, my life, my life will show. And the third lens is the body. You see, um, this is where the Bible does talk about sexual sin. This is where the Bible does talk about um, there's something unique about sexual sin. Uh, for some reason, um, there's just something different. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 18, Paul reminds the Corinthian church, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of the body, but the, person who, um, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's this idea of a deeper level of sin, and there's different, there's different consequences. And so there's sin in the heart, there's sin in the mind, there's sin uh, of the body. And the truth is, is that we look at sin as sin is sin, except the problem is, is that Scripture also teaches that sin is sin in the fact that it separates us from God, but different sin has different consequences. So one of the consequences of the sin in this lens might be guilt. It might be shame. It might be hiding. It might be bad relationships. It might be the idea of this, the, the cycle of just feeling like a failure, doing okay, feeling like... There's different consequences in this lens. And Pastor Sam did a great job talking about this last week, so I don't want to overdo this part. But understanding that when it comes to purity, this is something that's a trap. 
And I think there's a, there's a, there's a story uh, of, of a trap that I want to share with us to kind of give us more of a visual image of this. And so this is a legend, but the legend says that uh, the Eskimos in the Arctic Circle have this way of catching uh, predators that come on their property because the livestock keep dying. You see, it's cold up there, and, and they, need, they need the animals they have. And so they decided, well, to get these wolves to stop coming and killing our livestock, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna set up a little trap. So what they would do is they'd take a blade and a knife, and they'd get it razor sharp. And then they would go find a seal. Well, seals are easier to kill than wolves. And they'd get the blood and collect it in a bucket. And they'd stick the knife in the blood, and they'd take it outside, and they would let it freeze. They'd stick it in the bucket, take it out, and let it freeze. Stick it in the bucket, let it freeze until you get a nice blood sickle. Kind of a gross thought. But they'd get it set up on the outside of camp because they knew where the wolf traveled. They knew they could see the paws. And they'd set it up, and the wolf would come that night, enjoy the popsicle, the blood sickle. And the next morning, they'd wake up to a dead wolf. You see, from far away, the wolf smelled something he thought was good. He knew it was good. And so when he went to the camp and was looking around, he couldn't find the animal, but he smelled it. So something that looked kind of awkward, a foreign object, but he just smelled too good. He had to go and give it a little, little lick. Tasted. It was all right. So I'd lick it again. I'd lick it again. What he realized is that all of a sudden this cold bloodsickle started getting warm. It started tasting better. It started to fulfill that desire he had. And before he knew it, he realized he was getting weaker and not stronger. You see, popsicles for us, bloodsickles for the wolf. Too much, too quick, and what happens besides a brain freeze? Tongue gets numb. He didn't realize by design he was licking away, his tongue got numb, and the warm blood he felt and tasted that was so exhilarating was his own. You see, he didn't know that wolves bleed out in up to 15 minutes, as quick as 15 minutes, when they lacerate their tongue. You see, the Eskimos trapped the wolf by capitalizing on his own desires. And that's kind of a gross you know, story. I get that. But I have to ask the question, what are we numb to? Because spiritually speaking, I can relate to some of these things. I see something that I think looks good. I see something that I, I, I'm, I'm drawn to. That sin is there. And I'm like, this just, I think this will fulfill a need. I think this will fulfill uh, whatever. I, I feel like this is a good thing for me. And before I know it, I'm injured. Now, this is where the analogy is not perfect. Because for those of us in Christ, we don't have the death like the wolf has. See, this, this idea that, that, that Christ has come and he's, he's not only lived a perfect life, he's died the perfect death and now he's been raised again and we have our eternal hope and security in our relationship with Christ because he conquered death. Therefore, we too will conquer death with him because of him. And so we don't have that death that the wolf has, but we still have that injury. We understand the idea of being numb to something that's not helping us. For those of us who do not have a relationship with Christ, we have to understand that wolf is us. That there is a death for us. And the fact that the only reason why we can boast in being alive eternally is only because of what Jesus has done. 
And so I urge you to, to consider your sin, consider who you are, consider where you're at, and consider the fact that God loves you enough to send Jesus for you. And don't be like that wolf that wakes up dead the next morning. You see, we have to ask ourselves, what are we numb to? We have to ask ourselves, what are those things that allow us to be so narrow focused on what we want versus stepping back and asking what God would want for our lives? You know, even when there are warning signs and risks, at times we can't see past the enjoyment of the moment and we pretend it's not risky. So we have to ask, what do we do? And that's where I'm so thankful that we have practical advice. The scripture gives us lots of practical advice. Uh, Paul, to the church of Philippi, uh, told the Philippians to do this. Chapter 4, he says, Finally, brothers, he's ending his letter to them, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, Paul helps us understand that the mind is powerful and when we dwell on the things of a, that are from above, it helps give us the right perspective. This word think, just consider that word to be dwell. Dwell on truth, things that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, Anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And when we dwell on those things, we quickly are able to see the impurities around us and in us. When we ask God to create in us a new heart, a clean heart, to renew the spirit within us, we're able to see the impurities around us and in us. So I have to ask the question we asked earlier pertaining to rodent hair and other things. How much impurity are we actually okay with ingesting? What are those things, how much of those things are we okay with taking in? Because even though some of these things physically might cause an upset tummy or something like that, when it comes to spiritual things, there's much more on the line. So by way of conclusion, I thought it'd be just important to give some more just practical application, things drawn from Scripture to help us know what to do. Because this isn't about kicking people over and over again about sin or impurity. It's just hoping we step back to look at the things around us and in us. So first off, understanding that a glass can only spill what it contains. Uh, Luke 6, 45 talks about out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A lot of us spend a lot of time trying to make the outward look good. I do that too. I get it. But the truth is when life happens, when hardships come, when things aren't going the way that's planned, what comes out is really who we are. The glass only spills what it contains. And so part of stepping back and looking at purity is being real with what's, what's going on in here. And starting with me. And it's not just a non-pastor issue. It's not just a Christian issue. It's an us issue. It's a humanity issue. Secondly, we can't be deceived. Sin and impurity does hurt us. We might be numb to it, but it still hurts us. And the truth is it hurts others. Uh, the wolf, that's not a perfect analogy, but it gives us a visual of the deception of sin. It gives us a visual uh, of, of what really happens, even if we don't feel like it does. 
So third up, I think just to remember, uh, repent. Confess. Confess to God and confess to a, a brother or sister in the Lord. Establish an accountability relationship. We need Nathans. I need a Nathan. We need people asking us hard questions to help us strive to be like Christ, but also to make sure that we are honoring God in all areas, not just the outward. And hopefully we will respond like David did in Psalm 51. And then last up, live a life dependent on prayer and understand that worship is a lifestyle. Brian kind of talked about this earlier about it's not just the songs, right? Songs are the tools that we use to worship God. But really, we are, we are to live our lives as worship to him. That what we do in public and in private should honor him. How we think and how we talk should match up and honor him. The things we're bestowing to the next generation should honor him. It's understanding that even if right now we're overwhelmed with the burden of sin, that God has created a way out. That God allows us to be covered. Uh, that, that his sacrifice was enough. The resurrection was enough. But it can't just stop at fire insurance. It's got to be walking with him. Not that we can earn our salvation, but that it shows our salvation. You see, on the outside shall overflow from the inside. Let's pray. So, Father, when we look back uh, at the different parts of Scripture, when we see purity and impurity and sin and, and godliness and holiness and these things all in Scripture, God, today's a broad stroke at, at a much uh, detailed topic, God. There are so many avenues here. And, Lord, we know that sin um, has infiltrated so many things, God. Um, when sin entered the world, it, it broke everything. But God, you're a God that doesn't just leave us broken. God, you, you restore, you redeem. And so God, today as we take a look at some of these things, whether it's our heart, our head, uh, God, our body, God, these are just, just three attempts at looking at different parts of our life that need to be um, given to you. God, these are just different parts of our life that that sin creeps in and God, purity uh, becomes contaminated. So Father, I pray that today that we would not leave feeling beat up or discouraged. God, I pray that today we would, we would uh, be convicted to move and maybe to have some hard conversations, to find a Nathan in our life, to look at where we're being the wolves that, that pretend like, like it's okay, but we're numb to some things. God, I pray that we would be quick to repent and confess and God to, to dedicate our life to you. Lord, if we're here today and we don't know you, I pray that we would be bold enough to ask someone about you. God, that we would, have, uh, we would respond to you uh, with giving our lives to you, Lord. So Lord, help us to be uh, vessels. God, help us to be uh, people that only spill the sweetness that comes with the freedom in you. The sweetness of uh, of a salvation, uh, of a blood-washed pilgrim, God. So, Lord, we thank you so much for how much you love us and that you don't leave us hanging on these things, that you walk with us if we're willing to walk with you in this. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.